0: Hello listeners and welcome to the latest instalment of our podcast, Borders Blatherings, The podcast in which we shine a light on the curious, shadowy and often very magical history of the Scottish borderlands. I'm joined as ever by Mary Craig, my friend, uh, historian and archivist. How are you today, Mary?
1: I'm um, well, thank you, Doug. How are you?
0: Not too bad. I'm suffering a little bit from a cold. I hope that oh, doesn't yeah. come across.
1: Right.
0: Okay. Um, so, Mary, um, the haggis has been prepared, piped in, and addressed. The neeps and tatties have been boiled, mashed, buttered, and peppered. Whiskey has been drunk. And a copious amount of speeches have been made. <laughs> I am, of course, referring to... The prep for a Burns nicht, the Burns supper. The Burns supper. And by the time this installment goes out, people will have, all over the world, will have participated either live or virtually in a Burns supper. So I thought today we could have a good old blether about Robert Burns.
1: Oh, good idea.
0: The man had his legacy. Mm hmm. My first question to you would be a simple one. In my mind, I don't associate Robert Burns with the Scottish borderlands necessarily. Was he a frequent or occasional visitor here? Well,
1: actually Burns had a tour of the borders. Oh, really? And he took a tour of the borders in eighty-seven, uh, seventeen eighty-seven, 1787, after his... After his book of poetry went wild and everybody bought it and he was the great celebrity so that he was. He was a celebrity
0: by that time. He was yeah. a
1: celebrity and that's going to be the key word for me. Uh-huh. Um, and yes, he decided to go on a tour of the borders because he, obviously we, we start off with him, you know, at the, at the dock at Greenock about to go to the West Indies and all that. We know all about that. And then his poetry is, oh, well, that's fantastic. You're now a, a great celebrity. You're rich. That's fine. And he pitches up in Edinburgh to start with. Mm-hmm. And everybody in Edinburgh is all over him and they're talking about his poetry and that's great and he liked to talk about his poetry and that was fine but then unfortunately what you get is you get those and such as those who just wanted him because he was Robert Burns. The men that wanted to say they'd had a night out with him, the women that had flirted with him, this celebrity that he really wasn't comfortable with that and... He also realised he didn't really know much about Scotland outside of Ayrshire, to be honest. Uh And so he decided to do a tour. So he did a tour of the borders and he met up with a chap called Robert Ainsley from Duns, who was an Edinburgh solicitor. And this chap said, well, fine, let's go. And off they went and they had a tour of the borders. Uh, Started off, uh, Robert Burns gets himself a horse that he nicknames uh, Jenny Geddes, after Jenny Geddes it threw her stool and kicked off the St Giles riots in 1637.
2: Goodness. So uh,
1: <laughs> they toodled over the Lamer which Burns wasn't too impressed with, and they pitch up in Long Formacus, of all places to start with, and then headed off to Duns. Now, the reason we know all of this is that Burns kept a journal, which is wow. great, and he he wrote about his journey. But what's really interesting is that although the beautiful Borders countryside he liked, and please do come and visit folks, it's great, what he was much more interested in was the people of the borders and the ordinary people, the farm labourers, the shepherd, the market trader, the women mm-hmm. in the streets. That's who he was interested in and he kept this great journal. Um So, yeah, so he pitches up, first of all, in Berryhill Farm in Duns where Mr Ainsley's folks live. And he really likes Mr and Mrs Ainsley, especially Mr Ainsley because he, he talks in the journal about how this guy is. He is a Borders Laird. But he sits down and has lunch with the the shepherd or the labourer, and it's a really fascinating insight into Borders' life at that time. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, Burns starts talking about Rachel Ainsley, Robert Ainsley's sister, and she is an angel. And he goes on and on and on about the fact that she's an angel, and he flirts with her outrageously. They go to church on the Sunday morning up to Dunn's and the minister's droning on some sermon about sin or something and nobody in the church has paid any attention. They're all go, oh, look at that. Oh, that's that Robert Burns. all oh, look at him flirting.
2: <laughs> and at
1: one point, poor Rachel's trying to pay attention. She's trying to be a good girl, you know, listen to the sermon, but she can't find a bit in the Bible that the minister's talking about. And so Burns apparently reaches over to the pew, grabs her Bible, Pulls a quill pen and ink out of his jacket pocket and writes on the inside flyleaf something along the lines of didn't he bother with that old nonsense that he's talking about up there. That's meant for sinners, not angels like you. No. Oh, telling you, oh, what a flirt he is. So that's fine. So by the next morning, Robert Ainsley decides it'd be a good idea if they actually left. (laughs) And he drags Robert away from his sister. And Robert, of course, is broken hearted that he has had to leave the beautiful (laughs) and angelic Rachel behind. And off they go in their tour of the borders to various places.
0: Okay, now you mentioned that earlier about him booking a passage to go to Jamaica, but... Before that, let's stay in the borders, because we are in the borders, Mm -hmm. and in a sense of the borders Mm -hmm. nowadays, or the podcast certainly is, although we are not. I can't help but think of a a near contemporary of his, which is Sir Walter Scott, who we talked about in a previous podcast.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm intrigued by the fact that Burns is our national bard. Mm-hmm. A man who wrote one book of poetry, which was later added to. Yeah. Whereas yes. we have Scott, who wrote mm-hmm. many, many books and many, many poems,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and yet, and who was quite aspirational, who yeah. built his Conundrum Castle, who who was a supporter in some ways of the Union and 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 and, and so on, and yet Burns has remained closer to the hearts of Scottish people. Yeah. Any thoughts on why?
1: I think it's because Burns wasn't financially successful. I think it's also the fact that he died young helped. If you look at Burns, he was fond of a pint. He -hmm. was fond of the Mm lasses. He was a farming lad. He didn't aspire to be a laird the way Sir Walter Scott did. He didn't become a sir. Mm -hmm. And he died relatively young before he became an old man with ill health. Well, what's not to like there? And there's also the fact that... He connected with the people of the time because he spoke in Scots. He didn't speak in English. He didn't write in English the way Sir Walter Scott did. He spoke in the language of the people of the time. And even for people like myself who are non-Scots speakers, I know a few Scots words. When you hear Burns, you get that connection to the land. Yes, you under, yes. even if you don't understand every single word, you get the gist of what he's saying. Yes. And we're so lucky in Scotland because we have so many cultures, but predominantly we have the Gaelic and the Lowland. Mm-hmm. And he keeps us rooted in that lowland culture. That that, And the fact that he talks about ordinary things. He isn't middle class or upper class. He's not like Sir Walter Scott wanting to be aspirational and building a great big house. He talks about, you know, posh women with lice in their hair. Burns is the sort of lad that you could have a pint with down the pub and have a laugh and a joke with. Walter Scott is not. That's no disrespect to Walter Scott, but that's the impression we have of them. And why Burns is so, he's accessible in a way that Sir Walter Scott isn't, even though the language is actually not as easily read. So I think that's why we take him to our heart.
0: Okay, that—that—that that, that is crystal clear to me. Um, in a previous podcast, um, we talked about the apparent... <laughs> Semi-feudalism and social deference at large here in the Scottish borders. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're saying that, that because he didn't tip his forelock to that. Yeah. This makes him popular among Scottish people.
1: Yes. And he didn't suffer fools gladly. And yeah. we find that out throughout his trip in the borders. We can see where he's describing farm labourers or shepherds or cooks or servants. And he's pretty disparaging about the middle classes. He's really pretty, I mean, at one point he's down in Jedburgh and he meets up with this chap, Mr. Fair, who's like a solicitor signet to the, to the writer to the signet. And he goes out for a walk, he's taking on this grand tune, he's going out for the walk and there's Mrs. Fair and Mrs. Fair's sister and these are a pair of old harridans, the way, uh, Burns describes them. And they're absolutely awful, but they're terribly pretentious and of course they're not asking Burns about his poetry. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah.
1: They're there simply because of the celebrity of Robert Burns. Admittedly, what happens there is he falls in love with yet another young woman. Poor Rachel. Remember Rachel in the church? Well, she's been bumped. He's now in love with a lassie called Isabella, Isabella Lindsay. um And he walks about with her and flirts with her outrageously. Like at one point, he even takes hold of her arm. <gasps> shock, shock. Even though she's due to be married. And of course, Mrs. Fair and her sister, oh, they're outraged about this. Possibly because Burns hadn't flirted with them. I'm not quite sure. But he had very little time for bank managers and provosts and these mm. sorts of people. You know, he wasn't conceited and he didn't like those who were. He didn't like people who were false. He liked ordinary folk that would chat to him.
0: Does this mean then that he was not particularly well received down here in the, in the borders area?
1: Well, it depends. He was well received by shepherds and farm uh-huh. labourers and servants. Um, but, Mm, you know, people like the local bank manager and, and folk like that maybe didn't he quite take to him because they were they were showing off the fact they had gone on a walk with a celebrity. They were showing off the fact that Robert mm. Burns was staying in their house. And you know, from what he says, he doesn't actually mention them a lot of the time, Um which is interesting. And of course, you've got things like the Great Selkirk snub. Should we mention that? Dun dun dun. Oh, nah. Should indeed. <laughs> so. Robert Burns and Robert Ainsley pitch up. It is, of course, the borders in the summer, so it's raining. So they turn up one evening in Selkirk and they're covered in mud, they're soaking wet, and they go into the Vichy's Inn. And according to the story, the provost and the bank manager and the minister and the solicitor are inside having a dram round the coal fire. And uh, Burns comes in with Ainsley and they say, can we join the company? So the barmaid or whatever goes over and the provost said, who are they? And she said, well... One looks like a bit of a farmer and the other looks a bit disreputable. I'm not sure which way round she meant. And they said, no, no, please tell the gentleman the company is private.
2: Uh, and so they
1: left and went to the Forest Inn. Uh, now, this has been written up by James Hogg, who may or may not have been having a fight with Selkirk at the time, I don't know. But this has been great written up as the great snub of Selkirk. But I'm not so sure. If you were sitting with your friends having a having a pint or a glass of wine... And, you know, and two complete strangers came up and asked to join the company, would you let them? Or was this a deliberate snob? I'm not sure.
0: Well, I think personally, I would, being interested in other people. But yeah, I can see where he, were, it, it, you're saying that he was judged for who he was, not what he did or wrote. Exactly, and that's yes. that's the challenge yeah. down here.
1: Yeah. And again, like all things, just as we talked about Sir Walter Scott, so much has been lumped on to Robert Burns Mm. that actually didn't happen during his lifetime or is not his fault. I mean, one of the classic ones is the Selkirk Grace. For those that can hear, Cassie has decided to join us today, no doubt, to discuss the Selkirk Grace, but whether or not she's very excited about it, I'm not sure, because I think she's just about to go to sleep. Anyway, the Selkirk Grace, which is said at every Burns supper going, was not written by Burns.
0: You can hand on heart say that.
1: Absolutely, sure. 100%. The Selkut grace was was originally the Covenanters grace. So, go back a century to when the Covenanters had signed their covenant mm-hmm. between the people of Scotland and the Lord Jesus Christ.
2: Yep.
1: Now, the Covenanters were hunted by the king's men, so they were out living in the hills. So, sometimes they didn't have any meat to eat. And sometimes lying out in the hills in the winter time, they might have meat, but they might be too ill to eat it. Therefore, the wording of the sacred grace. And also, previously, grace used to be, you know, you'd sit down to your dinner and you'd say something like, Dear Lord, thank you for the food I'm about to eat. But also, thank the hands that prepared it or something yeah, along those yeah. lines. And the Covenanters looked at this and they said, why are you thanking the cook? Does that mean you have to thank the market trader as well? That you bought the meat from, and does this mean you have to thank the person that transported everything to the market? And does this mean you have to thank the farmer? This is getting to be a guy long list a of people. Chain exactly, <laughs> they're saying the only person that should be getting thanked
2: yeah. is
1: the Lord God. Yeah. So that's the self grace. Now it had sort of been forgotten about, and Burns resurrected mm-hmm. it. Yeah. But he absolutely did not did not write it. But again, it's one of these things where we all think oh, I wrote the self grace. And that's it. No, he didn't. He really didn't. But again, like all these people, he's not here to defend himself. So he gets things dumped on him um, <laughs> by, by posterity, as it were.
0: Yes, yes. Um, you mentioned at the beginning there this um, passage to Jamaica yeah. that he had booked and yeah. was about to embark upon. Mm-hmm. Can I just let you know and say a few words about an exhibition I saw six, seven years ago at the Edinburgh International Festival
2: mm-hmm.
0: called the Black Buns. Oh, right. This was very interesting. Uh-huh. It's especially interesting, you know, in the city of Robert Louis Stevenson and Jekyll mm-hmm. and Hyde. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was this yeah. attempt. Now, you know, the, this took place in the National Portrait Gallery. Right. And in the foyer, the entrance area of the National Portrait Gallery, there are a number of busts of famous mm. Scots. Yeah but standing head and shoulders on a pedestal up in them all is a statue of Robert Burns,
2: mm-hmm.
0: white marble, wearing a toga <laughs> and holding a scroll. It's similar to David Hume on the, on the Royal mile. did this whole idea of classical Edinburgh during yeah. the enlightenment yeah. as if Burns ever went round with a scroll. Um, And some years ago, the Blackburns Exhibition, uh, put on by a guy called Douglas Gordon, it was fascinating because he had, I think in Germany, I'm not sure, he had created a copy of uh, Flaxman's statue, Mm -hmm. colored it black, and then taken a sledgehammer or something to it and Uh, broken it. Uh So in front of the original installation, Mm -hmm. um, the flagsman statue toga scroll Mm -hmm. you have the blackburns lying at his feet Mm -hmm. this broken person and even more interesting in an annex there is a video installation of a guy called the ghetto priest performing the slave's lament and it really highlighted the potential contradiction in burn's life now he didn't go through with the passage to the plantation in Jamaica. What can you tell me about that?
1: Well, I find it really interesting, especially as you mentioned The Slave's Lament, because there are quite a few people that don't think he wrote The Slave's Lament. Uh So, he's broke. We know that. He can't make a living. Mm -hmm. His first book of poetry has been a complete disaster. So he decides he needs to go elsewhere to get a job. Fair enough. But what I have never understood is why he decided to go to a slave plantation. Now, I get it. There were huge Scottish slave plantations. Yes. Outrageously, we were involved so heavily in slave trade. It's outrageous. Um, so I get the fact that that was a connection he could make.
0: But you're desperate. Is this but the only option? Yeah,
1: exactly. And the thing is that to go out to the West Indies was a lot of money.
0: Yeah.
1: At the same time as this was happening, the Ruhr in the Saar Valley, mining was just expanding beyond belief at that time. There were a ton of Scottish engineers out there, and there was work for the asking, Mm. and the price of a ticket to the German states was, I don't know what it would have been, but it would have been an awful lot less. And if push came to shove, you can walk to Germany, you can't walk to the West Indies. So he had an option there as to where to go. And I know everybody says he was going across as an accountant or a bookkeeper, and maybe he wasn't actually going to be involved in physically whipping people. He's still involved in the slave trade. He's yeah, he, still involved in the filth and the disgustingness of the slave yeah, trade. he's
0: not a stupid man. Yeah. He, he, many would say he could still be guilty by association. Exactly.
1: I mean, this was a man who was lamenting the fact that he yeah. had to leave his home country and go across to the West Indies to work. What did he think about the black folk that had been dragged for their homelands in Africa all the yeah. way? You know, come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, so I'm absolutely... I, I really don't know what to think about it. And also the slaves' lament, as I say, now that wasn't written for about six or seven years afterwards. After, yeah. And there are some real Burns academics, I mean, really experts on the issue, that reckon that he didn't write it. Now, maybe he did. Let's let's give him the benefit of doubt and say that he did write it. It's interesting that it took him six or seven years to do so. And interesting that when he wrote it, it was when the abolition movement was really starting to gain some traction. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: If he had written it before then, I might be slightly more convinced, but I'm not convinced that if he did write it, he did write it for the right reasons, as opposed to, oh, right, abolitionist is, is the name of the game, let's write. So I don't know, maybe I'm being really critical of Burns. Yeah. I don't know, because obviously yeah. I wasn't there. But I do find it curious, the timing, and I find it very curious that I think it's something like 25, 30% of real Burns academics say that if you actually look at the poem, it is written in his style, absolutely, but they're not convinced that he actually wrote it. So that's interesting. But of course, it just makes the man more nuanced, as we all are.
0: Yes, indeed. Indeed. You know. And, and and although the the whole idea behind this exhibition was, if you like, the white buns and the black buns, yeah. it's smashed to pieces. Um, None of us are as binary as uh, as that. Exactly. Of I mean
1: if he was going out genuinely going out to, to you know, work in the slave trade and he'd no qualms about it, then I will absolutely throw things at his statue the next time I see it. Yeah. But as yeah. he's not here to defend himself, it'll be one of those what ifs, I'm afraid.
0: Well, thanks for that, because he could have done the a in pet. Oh yeah, he could have done
1: <laughs> plenty of work. But there. instead.
0: But that said, um that said, Laura Kunzberg's favourite phrase. Um was he talked out of doing this, or did he, uh, as it were, come to his senses?
1: No, the reason he didn't go was the fact that his second book of poetry had suddenly been published. So he, he had becomes... Money.
0: He becomes uh, yeah, I mean, the legend um, is that he
1: literally was standing on the dock when they came rushing up and said, there's a telegram from London, uh-huh. your second book's a hit. Now, you know, that's obviously, it's a nice legend. yeah. But yeah, yeah all of a sudden he had money. And that was when he went to Edinburgh to be feted, and this is where you know sort of like the the start of his 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 border journey. So he goes to Edinburgh initially, and everybody is just amazed at him, the poet, and that's great. And he has lots of conversations with people about his poetry and and you know literature and the, the the use of the mastery of his language, all of these sorts of things. And at first, it's great, but then he becomes a celebrity. Uh-huh. And of course everybody wants to take him out for a pint and all the girls want to flirt with him. And that's when he gets really ticked off with middle class Edinburgh. And that's when he decides to go on his borders tour to meet ordinary people, people that he can connect with, people that are genuine. And that's, that's the thing. He liked people who were genuine, whatever class they were. And most working class folk are genuine and most upper class folk are genuine. It's the middle classes who are so aspirational. aspirational They're the ones ones that are. Yeah. You know, poor old middle classes, but it's true. They are the ones that because <laughs> yeah. they're not, you know, they're not yeah. true to their own class. They're aspiring to a better class.
0: No, no, I get that because in, in previous conversations, we've talked about the the kind of semi-feudalism and social deference that is sometimes yeah. at large to this day here in, 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 the, in borders. the borders. Yeah. Uh, and, and that makes perfect sense.
2: Yeah.
0: To add a little anecdote to that from my experience working as a language trainer, Over the many years, I've worked with a lot of people from the former USSR or from Russia. And to a person, I am able to have a conversation with them about the work of Robert Burns. Mm. Because they've studied, read, been taught it at school, and will often tell me that in Russia, he's considered a people's poet. Yeah, yeah. So his appeal is very much the common man.
1: Yes, very much so. Yeah, I mean, you can see that in the journal and the borders. I mean, he does talk about the landscape, he does talk about the towns, he calls Kelso enchanting, or he says, you know, he likes the Jed water, or things like that, but it's the people he's writing about yeah. in the borders, and it's the people where he has anecdotes. Although he does, I mean, there are a couple of anecdotes that are just hilarious. There's one when he goes to uh, Coldstream, and Robert Ainsley points out the bridge and says, and of course, across there is England. And uh, he crosses the bridge, and what Pope Pope John Paul II used to do when he got off planes. The kiss,
0: kiss whatever tarmac was available.
1: According to Robert Ainsley <laughs> Burns crosses the bridge into Cornhill and then bends down and blesses Scotland not England and then turns around and comes back again to Scotland. Now whether or not he actually did that I'm not sure yeah. But Robert Ainsley was there at the time, and he's convinced that that's what happened. So, you know, you have to you have to take it. But there are lots of things about <laughs> Burns' uh, border stuff. I mean, there's the Brawlads of Gallowater. This is another one of the, the stories about Burns and the Borders. Apparently, he pitched up a cottage uh, just north of Stown, Gallowbank, and he scratched a line of the Lads of Gallowater on a window pane. And I don't understand this legend. We know that he kept a journal. Because we've read it, you know, and we know that he had quill and ink at all times. Mm. What's was he doing, scratching things on a window? And he didn't even write that poem for another six or seven years after he left the borders. And
0: what's a window pane doing there at Galloway? Well, exactly,
1: bank? because most cottages at that time in the summer you'd have a muslin cloth across yeah. it, but in the it would just be open. You wouldn't have, and you certainly wouldn't have glass the way we do now. Mm. Even if you had glass, it would be knobbly and lumpy. You couldn't scratch on it. And in some areas it would be so thin it would break. But this legend persists that he scratched this. I mean, we don't even have any note of him going through Gala at one point. He may have gone through Clovenford. We're not sure. So right, right. So I'm not quite sure where this legend has come from. But it's yet another Burns legend that connects him to the borders. Which is, it's an odd one certainly. But, you know, there you go.
0: Because we're in the Borders, and in a sense of the Borders, or our podcast is, the, although we know that Sir Walter Scott and Burns met at least one time mm, when Scott yeah. was a young lad of 14, 15, was there ever any jealousy on Sir Walter Scott's behalf uh, towards Burns when he became successful?
1: No, no. I mean, Scott's supposed to have met Burns when he, I think he was about 14 or 15, as you see. And he was very impressed with the man. Mm. Um, he was incredibly impressed with his poetry. and loved his poetry and felt that, you know, Burns wasn't conceited in any way. He wasn't the, look at me, I'm the great poet. He was very, I mean, he knew his own worth as a poet, but he wasn't conceited in any way. He wasn't, you know, showing off in any way. And, and Walter Scott really respected. That. I mean, when Walter Scott grew up and started writing um, border ballads, what stopped his poetry dead was actually Byron. It wasn't Burns, mm, because of course yeah, Sir Walter Scott yeah. wrote in English. And although he wrote the Border Ballads, most of his writing, most of his successful writing was about the Highlands. And Burns never really wrote about the Highlands. His heart was in the Lowlands. He was a Lowlands man. You know, so there wasn't any great rivalry or great jealousy there from Scott towards Burns. No.
0: Yeah, that's, 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 The intriguing thing is that, is, is that Burns becomes our national (laughs) bard because, uh, the common touch.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, he's... A
0: poor farm boy who is a womanizer, dies young, and likes a drink. Yeah. Uh, becomes our national. You know, he's
1: from the lowlands. Yeah. He writes in Scots. And yet what happens at the Burns supper? We cover ourselves in tart and we play bagpipes. Yeah. Yep. It's an odd one. Uh, there's nothing like us Scots for mixing things up, uh-huh. you know, and, yep. and we have all sorts of things going on. As I say, we have the silk Grace that he didn't write, and mm. we have, we have you know, we we pipe in the haggis for some bizarre reason. I don't know why <laughs> we're bagpiping in anything that, yep. you know, Burns at no point, as far as I'm aware of, ever had any connection with bagpipes. I mean, he did have a Highland tour later on in his life. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he was a lowland man and proud of being a lowland man and he liked, he liked the people, the ordinary people of the borders because they were very like the ordinary people of Ayrshire where he'd grown up. He knew what it was like to be a farmer when he was, he was farming Mount Oliphant and you know, it was more stone than soil. You know, he knew how hard a life it was to be lowland. Farming stock,
0: and, and he was. If I think, if I, I, I understand what you're saying, he was aware of the almost, if if you like, the two Scotland's, the Lowland and the Highland yes, Scotland, yes, are, very much and was so. able to be critical of yes. not only the Scots as a nation when it comes to. Parcel of rogues, mm-hmm. but also of the Jacobite rebellion in the in the north. Oh yes, because that wasn't Jacobites you know, by man.
1: Well, if you think about it, the Forty Five wasn't that long ago when Burns yeah. was going about. Yeah. You know, and of course, genteel Edinburgh had been terrified by the rising of the Forty Five, mm-hmm. and genteel Edinburgh had done what genteel Edinburgh always does: tried to anglicise itself as much as possible, <laughs> and then here Burns turns up. St- Talking in Scots, writing in Scots, and refusing to kowtow to the Enlightenment who wanted him to write in English. And Burns was like, no, I'm writing in my own tongue, I'm writing in my mother tongue, which is what he did. And so, you know, those who were genuinely understanding of his literature, of his poetry, of his writing, understood this. What the great and the good of Edinburgh actually made of his poetry you know, those that were running about and just following him and fawning on his celebrity, I don't know what they whether or not they actually even read his poetry and understood it I don't know, Uh, that would be fascinating, I'd love to be a fly in the wall in some sort of genteel drawing room as some Edinburgh deuce, Miss Jean Brodie tried to reset some (laughs) of his poetry in one of those voices I'd love to know what they'd actually genuinely thought of him
0: The, the, the <laughs> my, my, my picture of Nigel Farage today, it, it long lasting. It, 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 this guy who would There's not a bandwagon. The man wouldn't jump on. <laughs> well, <that's true. laughs> this was existing way back centuries oh, yeah, ago.
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean the the greatest scandal you could have was not to have been flirting with Robert Burns if you were an <laughs> Edinburgh lady of a certain age. Yeah. yeah.
0: I I do wonder what this tells us about us Scots. Just to give you some background to experiences I've had over the years working as a language trainer with um, people from the former USSR or Russia, Mm -hmm. to a person, I can have a conversation with them about the work of Robert Burns. Yeah. They've read him at school. They've been brought up. They will often say he's known as a people's poet mm-hmm. in, 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 in Russia, and of course his before we move on to that, his legacy is far and white.
1: Oh yes, yes,
0: far and white. You mentioned earlier, and I'd like to go back to that if possible. You said the brawl lads, ogalawater. Yes. I had known that up to this point as a brawl lad.
1: Right. Now, all the real Burns aficionados are now going to start shouting at the podcast because we're going to get this wrong. My understanding (laughs) of the poem is that it starts off talking about the lads of Yarrow and the lads of Jeddart, but none compare to the braw lads of Gala Uh and the braw lads of the Gala water. So that's why it's plural, (coughs) as far as I'm aware. But as I say, I'm quite sure that all the Burns people are now shouting at the two of us that we've got that bit wrong or something, which is all to the good, of course.
0: Okay. No, that's great because... Up to this point, me thinking of it as the braw lad, mm. You know, you, you paint this picture of a man who would fall in love at the drop of a hat and he oh, could yes. be enamoured. Uh, I don't <laughs> think quickly. he was enamoured
1: of the lads in the board, as it was much more the lassies. As I say. I mean, after, after his dalliance with uh, Isabella Lindsay, uh, he then went back up to Dunn's with his, and, and fell in love with, uh, Rachel all over again. Yeah. So, so Rachel is in and out of favour and Isabel's in and out of favour, you know, and, and yeah, he certainly, to be kind to him, he had an eye for the lassies. He did In indeed. these modern times, you might think of him more as a womaniser and, and his behaviour was not to be applauded, but you know, it, it was what it was. And at least he was, at least he was, at, honest about the dalliances he had. You have to give him that much, at least.
0: Although some some cloak and dagger work was required, I think, in his personal life because of Clorinda.
1: Well, yes. Um, I mean, it did depend on, you know, which young lady was in favour at the time Hmm. and how many young ladies were on the go at any one time. So that is, yeah, that's a whole other situation. As far as we're aware, there were no little baby Burns is born after his visit to the Borders. But I could be wrong in that, you know, you never (laughs) know. Um, But as far as I'm aware, Rachel and... Well, Isabel certainly married her uh, fiancé a few weeks later and Rachel kept her honour, as far as I'm aware. But uh, who knows, there might be somebody kicking about the Borders today who can trace their ancestry back to our national bard.
0: And do we have corroboration of many of the... You you say Burns kept a journal himself. yes. Did his travelling companion also contribute to the record?
1: Robert Ainsley wrote letters to his friends about the, the things they got up to. So yeah. he'd written about the incident at Cornhill where he sort of allegedly kissed the ground, and James Hogg, as I say, wrote about the this the, the snub at Selkirk. Um so yeah, there are several I mean, um there was a Robert Scott who was a, a bank manager down in mm. um Kelso or Jed, but I can't remember which off the top of my head. And he wrote about it. He was actually a little bit disparaging about Burns because he really wasn't interested in Burns the Poet. He was more interested in the celebrity and Mm -hmm. having him say, you know, so he was a little bit, oh well, you know, he stayed with me. So there's plenty of people and plenty of places around the borders where he's supposed to have spent the night. Although a little bit like Rob Roy's cave. It's amazing how many nights he actually spent in the Borders <laughs> when you know he must have slept in practically every bed and every big house in the Borders at this rate.
0: It's what I call the Ernest Hemingway syndrome. Uh, yes. He, he there would was, have died very young if he had actually drunk in all of the pubs he said. Exceed,
1: yes. So there was the same sort of thing no. going on, yes. So yeah. he
0: didn't really appreciate the celebrity that he gained, unlike Sir Walter Scott.
1: No, that wasn't, that wasn't what he was about. I mean, it's really interesting to me the places that he didn't visit. So, for example, he didn't go to see where um, William Wallace was proclaimed guardian of Scotland, ah, even yeah. though he said he was down here to look at the history. He goes down to Berwick on Tweed and is completely dismissive of it. Um doesn't bother to go to the bit, which is now the railway station, of course, where John Balliol was proclaimed by Edward of England. Yeah. He doesn't go to places like that, but he does go to places like Thomas Reimer's Tower.
2: Uh-huh.
1: He thinks of himself as a man of the people. He thinks of himself as, you know, he's just a lad. Yes, he writes poetry, but he's an ordinary person. He's not puffing himself up. He's not conceited, and he doesn't like people who are conceited. He's here to see the real borders, the working people in the borders. And I think that that he could have quite easily, you know, if if somebody had pitched up and said to him, we need a hand with today's ploughing, I think he'd have rolled up his
0: sleeves. I
1: genuinely think he would have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A man's a man for all that. Indeed. Indeed. We're all burns I think we have a fairly clear picture now of what, what motivated the man, although uh, it's not just a black and white issue, I suppose.
1: No, it never is. It never is. Um,
0: before we finish, can I put something to you? He then is a man who has had a great influence on Scotland. Mm-hmm. As a nation, yeah, but would not be happy to be a social in, uh, social media influencer influencer <laughs> in, in modern times. Yeah, bit of a punk rocker in a sense. But,
1: yeah, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think he would have been on Twitter or um, I don't know. Maybe would have been, but I don't think so. Um, yeah, I think he would have shunned that that yeah. side of celebrity and and to be very unkind to social influencers I think the world could do with fewer of them and more burdens
0: That's an excellent point on which to stop Mary Thank you very much
1: (laughs) You're welcome